The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for who you are and that you have particularly, particularly revealed yourself uh, to us and who you are in the person and the work of your Son, most especially in our reading today, in death and resurrection. So God, we, we are coming to you just very hopeful that you will show us uh, the very center of our faith uh, today. Give us the faith to believe your word and the strength uh, to uh, live lives that believe it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. Hey, great job on the French toast, fellas. Thank you so much. Uh, 68 and 69, 68 and 69, is what I had written down on my sheet. So we last week, um, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know exactly. We're talking about uh, John 19 to 21. Last week, I know we talked about John 18 a little bit. So John 19 uh, to 20, 19, 20, 21 today, death and resurrection. Or, uh, it is finished. This is the climax of of salvation history. This is it. This is today we're talking about the singularly most important weekend in all of history. Uh, the most important uh, event that has ever happened, and that is the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior uh, Jesus Christ. This is, of course, um, a story at least a narrative that I look around the room and I feel like everybody here is familiar with. So I don't really want to spend too much time talking about what happened because I think that you know what happened. If you don't know what happened, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about it. Uh, but I want to really spend time thinking about why it happened the way it happened. Uh, and why it matters to us. So not just thinking about the what, but thinking about uh, the why. This is a story that really starts in the Garden of Eden, uh, not just the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this is a story that, in a sense, started with the fall of mankind. Uh, as uh, we have been looking, how is God, how, or let me say that, that like this, how is the problem between God and humanity going to be solved. There has been a fall. There has been a breach uh, in the relationship. And there is nothing that we can do to solve that. So if how is it going to be solved? Well, this is God's solution, is the cross and the resurrection. But I think the case can be made, made that God knew that the fall was going to happen. And this He's been aiming for this moment all along, from the moment where we read... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When He said, let there be light, that He was aiming for this moment, the cross and the resurrection. This is about God's glory. And um, this is, I mean, in a sense, this is the prince running into the blazing tower to save the princess at the cost of his own life. This is, this is the... The narrative that shapes every other narrative. This is the story that makes other stories great. Uh, this is the rescue mission's climactic scene. That God has come to rescue us, essentially from ourselves, from evil, from sin and death. I want to. We're looking at a big, important swath of Scripture. John, 
19, 20, and 21. I hope we get through all that. But what I want to do is take a look, use five phrases from the Scripture to talk about uh, what, uh, not just what happened, but why it matters. These are going to be five phrases that are probably familiar to you, very well known, and recently familiar since we've just really come just a couple of weeks ago uh, through Holy Week and Easter. Behold your king. It is finished. I have seen the Lord. Peace be with you. Do you love me? Alright, those are the five phrases we're going to use to kind of frame uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're not going to get a, an exegesis of all, uh, all the bits and nuggets of three chapters of the end of uh, John, death and resurrection. There have been books and books written on each of these chapters. Behold your king, it is finished. I have seen the Lord. Peace be with you. Do you love me? First, behold your king. Now, you might remember that this is, these are the words of Pontius Pilate. Uh, Jesus has already been arrested uh, in the garden at Gethsemane uh, with Judas and, and all of that and all of that drama. He's already been to Caiaphas uh, and he has, uh, with the high priest, and he who sent him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. It's important because Pilate really was the Roman governor. That's a, a historical piece uh, that we have anchored there. Uh, this, this story, is, its historicity is part of what makes it so important. And, and so relevant for us. But, so, in fact, Jesus has already been flogged. You know, that awful scene that none of us can unsee from, uh, from which I think is important for us to have seen, if you've seen it, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, is that flogging. It's just, it's just awful. Um, and, and so this, this is after that, and, and he brings him out into the courtyard and says to the Jews, Behold your king! He's already, had a, he's already had a conversation with Jesus um, where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, so then you are a king. So he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So this, and he speaks to him, Behold your king. Now, I think it is very hard, for, at least for me, it's hard to read this as any way other than he's mocking the Jews. It's sarcastic, right? Um, Look at your king, you sorry peasants, is essentially what he's saying. Um, but actually, he's speaking more truth than he could possibly have known. Behold your king. This is really the task of the Christian, isn't it? Behold your king. Look upon your king. Consider uh, your king. This is the task of Holy Week when we really think of these things, but this is the task uh, in any portion of Scripture that we read, and especially the Gospels, but not exclusively the Gospels. Uh, we are to behold our King. This is the task of, uh, of every Christian when we're looking at the cross, when we're walking through Holy Week, when we are living out our Christian life. Because a life is not Christian because it's moral. Right? There are a lot of moral people who don't believe in Jesus. I think there are a lot of people who are a lot better than me that don't, don't, live, don't believe in Jesus. A life is Christian because it's looking to Christ. Behold your King. That is the crux. Uh, that is the task. What is it, um, other than the fact that Jesus has uh, essentially revealed Himself, why, why do we think of Jesus as a King? What is it about Jesus that we would 
that connotes kingship. I mean, that we don't live in a in a culture that um, we don't live in a culture that that has a king, and so a, a monarchy seems foreign or antiquated to us. So, what is it about Jesus that makes his kingship relevant for us? He's God. Okay, sure. Well, is a king the highest authority? He's the highest authority. Mm-hmm. So say more about that. Yeah, let's well, expand on that a little bit. Of a people, mm-hmm. a king or a president is the highest authority. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you have to, basically, you had to do what the king said, right? He was the one. I mean, I think about King David. Everybody that King David met um, had to do what he said. He rarely came into people who weren't under uh, his authority. He was the ruler of all. He was the ruler of all of within his kingdom. Now Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not a geographic kingdom. His kingdom is the territory of his kingdom is the hearts of his followers." Right. So he's the king because he's the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate authority because he's God, and he is uh, not um, revealed himself as our dictator, but as our benevolent and gracious king. The king who has the highest authority is the one who can say. Um, to the dungeon with you, off with his head, right? That's what the king can say. Our king is said off with my head, essentially. I mean, thank God he didn't have his head chopped off like John the Baptist, but he, um, but he said off. He he took our penalty upon himself. He he went to the dungeon. That's what makes him our king. Right, he's he is uh, the picture of grace. Uh, when Pontius Pilate says, Behold your king, he is speaking, I think, prophetically. Um, that John kind of leaves it there for us to interpret. Um, but, but I think those are important words uh, for us. Uh, behold your king. Yes, Ted. John, the king is also an emblem or an icon. Okay, yes. The, the king, uh, Ted, this is uh, Father Ted, said that uh, the king is an emblem or an icon of the territory that he rules and he reigns. Uh, he is to be the first one in battle. Uh, if you, re- I love C.S. Lewis. He's, uh, Aslan tells uh, the high king Peter, this is part of being a king. You have to be the first one at the head of the line when you're rushing into battle. Uh, and, and I know Lewis is just thinking theologically when he, when he says those things. But yes, he's emblematic. He's the, he's the image on the coin, right? He's, he's the image upon which uh, we treasure. So, that's good. Yes, Jill. Mm-hmm. We borrowed a Bible here today. And the RSV, are you looking at verse 5? Uh, let's see. Well, I actually didn't write down which verse I was looking at. Behold, your king is in uh, 14. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Okay, thank you. Because I kept getting hung up on it. It said, Behold this, the man. Behold the man, yes. Yes, so that, that was earlier. So, 14, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them, delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate wasn't willing to uh, cede any of his own authority, of course, but he also wasn't willing to pick a fight with the Jews by, by doing what he knew was the right thing. And so to keep the peace, essentially, he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. These uh, Jewish authorities, they were the ones who should have recognized the Messiah. That was sort of their job, really. 
was to recognize the Messiah. And they become a picture of all of us in our fallen state. We want to be in charge. Um, We don't want to behold the king. We want to push him away. Yes, Susie. Pharisees, um, he he kind of stirred up with the Pharisees, so no longer would they be in charge. <clears throat> they would have been wrong for coming to many conclusions if they acknowledged him as. But it was political, politically based, or ethnically based that they didn't recognize Jesus as son of. It wouldn't have been ethnically based. It would have been theological. Uh, Susie's asking why would why didn't they recognize him, and the, uh, what were the what was the basis? The basis was because he looked like a man, and, and he was claiming to be God. But they knew of all the miracles and all the things that he did, and it couldn't be just rumors. It had to have a ring of truth to it. It's like they deliberately chose because it would take power away from them. Well, I think I mean so why why couldn't they just see the miracles and believe? I, the answer is because they they would have lost what they had what they clung to, which was their power, and and and, and it's, I mean that's the nature of humanity. It, it don't don't bother me with the facts. I want you know like I I need I am I want to be in charge of my own life. He was breaking their laws. He was bre- there was a sense in which he was breaking their laws. I mean at least they they could make the case he was the interpreter and the author of the laws himself, and so he gets to do that the way he wants, but. Um, but yeah, so they, they, they're, um, I, I think it's important for us not to say, well, I never would have denied Jesus. If I were in that situation, I never would have. I would have seen those miracles and I, and I would have believed. Maybe, but I, but I think it's, you're in, on safer ground to say, I, I was among those who called out to crucify him. I find myself in that crowd. Yes? Weren't they kind of following that they thought he was going to come like a king, a man, and all the splendor and announce himself like I'm your Savior, your Redeemer, and he came as an innocent little baby. So they were following the fallacy of that. What was uh, Melinda said? What was what were they looking for? Essentially, what were they uh, were they expecting him to come in splendor? And I think there's probably some to that. Um, I mean, here is this. You know, he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was an itinerant, homeless preacher with an enormous following. It was an embarrassment. Um, you know, and a crucified Messiah is even more of an embarrassment. You know, for, for them. and of course, God would never let uh, His Messiah uh, suffer in such a way. That was evidence to them that He was not. Um, and, and so, so yes, I think that, that there was some sense in which He did not meet their expectations as a military ruler who would overthrow the Romans. Now, had they thrown their support and weight behind Him, perhaps He could have become that. But He didn't come to be that. He didn't want that. You know, so. All right, so, so behold your king. That's the task of every Christian. That's the task of our discipleship as we live out our lives. Jesus from the cross, the next phrase, uh, it is finished. Now, there's, you know, we, you've heard sermon series on the seven last words of Christ or something like that. That might be a good thing for us to do next Lent. Um, but this, was, this is the final one. Uh, so we're, there's other words uh, from Christ in here, and we're, gonna, um, we're not going to cover those. You can do those on your own time. But for the purpose of our class, it is finished. What is finished? His task on earth. Like his life is finished, right? The work that he came to do on earth is finished. Um, the atonement of sin. The atonement of sin. So not just the the moral teaching and the miracles, but the actually the the work of atonement. Because he said it is finished, and then he died. <laughs> 
So he had taken the funnel of all human sin upon himself. It's, I said it in my um, Good Friday sermon. I don't know if you were here, but I mean, if you think of a funnel over the cross and all murder, all rape, all war, all corruption, uh, all human trafficking, all um, tax evasion, all lying, all deceit, all um, uh, ruthless ambition, everything that is dark in this world funneled all on top of Jesus. It is um, all for, not just now, but throughout the centuries and all that is to come, uh, all that had been before Jesus, it is mind-boggling. In fact, it's the mercy of God that we cannot get our heads around that darkness. And it is the mercy of... Uh, it is uh, equally true that we cannot get our heads around the majesty and the righteousness and the the holiness of Jesus that He could absorb such darkness upon Himself. Maybe it's not right to think of it in terms of math. <laughs> but I, I, I think of it that way. How, how glorious, how holy uh, He would be to absorb uh, all of that. So He came to be the atoning sacrifice. I don't know if you find that offensive. Um, that the center of your faith is a bloody injustice committed on your behalf. I, I think that um, that the gospel, in a sense, should be offensive. I, I actually do. I find it. I find it hard, increasingly so, actually, that God would require such a sacrifice. Um, and yet, I look at my own sin. And I say, well, how am I going to cross the bridge to get to God? God made it this way. And so actually, even closer to the center of our faith than the gruesome, bloody sacrifice is the love of the Lamb who gave Himself as that sacrifice. So, when Jesus says, it is finished, He is not just saying that His life is finished or that His movement is finished, but that the atoning work, and in fact, Bishop N.T. Wright, a great author, theologian, uh, says John's gospel would not have us forget is that Jesus goes to the cross as the climax of the long story of confrontation between the Creator God and the principalities and powers of this world. This is uh, essentially a battle on the cosmic scale between good and evil, between God and all uh, spiritual forces that would come against God. And God prevails in His own death. When it all, for all the world it looks like, Evil has prevailed. That's what the disciples thought. They were mourning. They were weeping. They came to the cross on. Uh, they came to the tomb on on Sunday morning, expecting a funeral. That's actually not all that's ended. That's not all that's finished. Because as we live that out, what else is finished? It's that that um, what's finished is our own having to prove ourselves, our own striving to be worthy. Um, our own finding our, di- I, I, our identities and being identified by what we do and who we know and where we've been and where we live and how much money's in the bank. and We're identified by the work of Jesus, which can never be taken away from us. The, this, the money in the bank, that can be taken away from us. The, who we know, that can be taken away from us. Who we love, that can be taken away from us. It can never be taken away is what Jesus has done uh, for us. Katie said, right, yes, Katie said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And that's a resurrection story, but that's a, um, that is also 
part of it is finished, right? So I can face tomorrow because of what he's accomplished uh, for me. So behold your king, it is finished. Jesus dies, they put him in the tomb. And that beautiful, um, it's Michelangelo, right, that, that carved the Pieta, is that in there, right? Amy and I went to Italy, and I was so excited to see the Pieta. And they, were, they were making somebody a saint, so there's all these clerics there, and they, it was cordoned off, and we couldn't see it. So we just, through, through the cracks in the curtains, we could see the, the Pieta. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they put him in the tomb, and, and it's over, man. They, I mean, listen, dead people don't rise. They know. They know what death is. Yes, maybe perhaps, I, I don't think it's fair to say that they were a more superstitious uh, people or more, more likely to believe um, uh, in spiritual things, um, to make up spiritual stories. I don't think it's fair to say that. But even if that were true, they knew what dead was, and they knew that that, that was it. So he's in the tomb. Saturday's the Sabbath. Sunday morning, uh, they go and they are looking for a funeral. The, the women are coming to uh, prepare the spices uh, uh, to continue what they weren't able to finish. How are we going to get in, they say. Who's going to roll away the stone for us? They get there, the stone is rolled away. So the third, the third um, uh, phrase that I want to talk about is, is, I have seen the Lord. This is the uh, declaration of Mary Magdalene when she runs to tell the disciples. Because remember, Mary Magdalene was in the garden. Oh man, there's something really important I wanted to ask uh, you guys about the crucifixion. Can, you, can I put a pin in that? Can we, can we go back to the crucifixion? My question is, why did it have to happen that way? The crucifixion. Did it have to happen that way? Could God have done it? Another way? What? Why did it? Why so gruesome? Why, Ellen? To fulfill a prophecy. Okay. Well, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Yeah, that's that's. Back then, the law required a blood atonement. Yes. Of a perfect lamb or goat that was unblemished that had no faults in it. Okay, so the perfect sacrifice was required, and he was. Sure. But you know, could I mean if Jesus had just died at a ripe old age in his bed, I mean, would he have accomplished lots of lots of he had to suffer, right? You know, what a it 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 had to be this way. And and even if even if God in his sovereign uh, sovereignty could have done it another way. This is the way in His infinite wisdom that He chose to do it. This was the best way. Yes? For, for me, even at a, a young age, that suffering hit home to me how God feels when I am not one with Him. Mm-hmm. That it's that, that painful to Him when we do not want Him. Yeah, Katie said that the suffering on the cross uh, speaks to her about God's suffering when, when she's not uh, with Him. It also gives us the, uh, the opportunity to have a God who understands our own suffering. Uh, to have a God, God the Father, who understands what it's like to lose a child. Oh my gosh. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say that. And it's terrible, but it's wonderful to know that God understands. So yes, I think it had to be 
the way it was. All right, back to the resurrection. I've seen the Lord. Uh, the truth of the resurrection is the hinge of Christianity. Like if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it, reduces, it essentially reduces Christianity to, to a moralism, um, a, a suggestion of a way to live your life, uh, a hope that you will follow the example of a kindly teacher who actually was pretty doggone fierce. It's hard to kind of parse that out. The resurrection is the vindication of what we say happened on the cross. I mean, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins but didn't rise again, then it's just an asterisk in history. It's the fact that He rose again, He shook off death, He defeated death, and then shook it off of Himself that, that, um, that we actually walk uh, in that uh, proclamation. Uh, that we understand that our sins have actually been forgiven, that we have eternal life with God. The truth of the resurrection is the hinge. If the resurrection is true, then everything's true. If everything it, it, that is in Scripture is stated, and yet the resurrection didn't actually happen, how can you decide what's true and what's not true? But if the resurrected, if God Himself died and was resurrected, then everything else makes sense. No big deal to have five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 people if you have somebody who can be resurrected from the dead. So the resurrection makes sense of everything. And I want to just go over three really quick things about why we can trust the resurrection. Again, this is, you know, books and books have been written on why we can trust the resurrection. But it's not, we're not saying that the spirit of Jesus was resurrected or the idea of Jesus was resurrected. We're saying the body of the person of Jesus was resurrected, right? Uh, in my Easter sermon this year, I talked about the testimony of the women. Uh, the women were the first ones to the tomb. The women uh, are very prominent in the proclamation that Jesus has uh, arisen. In fact, this is Mary Magdalene's phrase, I have seen the Lord. And um, you know that in, in, in those in those days, if you wanted to make up a lie and have people think it was true, you would never put it on the testimony of women. You, you would that would be there would be so much pressure uh, on the gospel writers to um, because the testimony of women was not admissible or believable in their culture. It was a misogynistic culture, to say the least. But in that culture. Uh, that's the way they viewed the testimony of women. And so the only reason to put the testimony that Jesus was alive on the lips of women was if you were dedicated to telling the truth as it happened. So had they seen the Lord? Yes. They had seen the risen Lord. They had had a conversation with Him. If the disciple, the tomb is empty. I mean, that's actually pretty much indisputed. The tomb was empty because the Romans could have just produced the body. Look, you went to the wrong tomb. Let's go take a look at the right tomb. Here's the body uh, of Jesus. But if the apostles had, if the tomb was empty and the apostles, as some would say, um, would if the apostles had stolen the body, then uh, they would have had to have all died over the course of forty years for a lie. What they knew was a lie. They were all in on stealing this, but they actually saw the resurrected Christ. I don't know. I saw this uh, quote uh, actually on Facebook. That I, it's it's a Verifiable. It's been ver- I've verified it uh, from Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. Remember Chuck Colson's on the radio, Prison Fellowship. Before my time, I don't, I don't. Uh, 
but um, it was before my time, but Watergate, I mean, he was kind of the nasty hitman for Richard Nixon, right? Came to Christ in, in prison. He died a couple of years ago. And pe- I mean, the nasty things that people still brought up about him, it was amazing. But, here, but he, here's what um, Chuck Colson says. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead then they proclaimed the truth that they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me the 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Incidentally, the pastor of Christ Church um, PCA Presbyterian Church, right down the road on Augustine uh, Augustine Road, um, his name is Chuck Colson. Uh, actually, uh, also, he's a friend of mine. I like to tease him about that. All right. So, behold, your King. It is finished. I have seen the Lord. Peace be with you. The night that Jesus was resurrected. Doors were locked for fear of the Jews. The apostles were huddled together, afraid. Afraid that they were going to be arrested. Afraid that they were going to be flogged and crucified. Afraid that they were going to be outcasts from society. Um, And Jesus appears behind the locked door and says, Peace be with you. Shalom. Shalom is the world is as it should be. I love and I appreciate that Jesus speaks this this word of His appearance into an environment that is identified as fearful. Because so much of our life is driven by fear. Fear is, is... an uncertainty about what is going to happen. Fear is always future-oriented. You're not afraid of something. You might be disconcerted, or, uh, but you're never afraid of something that has already happened. right? That creates a, It's not what we call it, anyway. Fear is future-oriented. I'm, I don't know what's going to happen, and that brings me a lot of fear. Or, I do know what's going to happen, but I don't want to endure it. And that brings me a lot of fear because I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know if it's, I'm going to get through it. But fear is about the future and about uncertainty. And Jesus speaks into this fearful environment saying, I give you my peace. Remember, He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not Pentecost. It's really just kind of an assurance. In our uh, epistle reading today, we talk about the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. This peace be with you in the resurrection from the resurrected Christ. This is the embryo of that new heavens and new earth peace. Because in that world there will be no more crying, no more death, no more mourning. All will be as it should be and Jesus is, is giving the seeds of that, the embryo uh, of that hopeful message. Uh, why? Why? Because we're in His hands. 
He is the God who loves. Remember John 17. If we were to go all back through there, he's praying. He says, I've not lost any that you've given me. I'm praying for all those who will um, hear the message of these apostles and, and, um, and will come to faith. I mean, Jesus it lives to intercede for us. We know this all through the passages of, of Paul and the, the rest of the New Testament. That we are in His hands and that the gift of God is peace. And so when we find ourselves in um, fear, in trouble, in uncertainty, in a situation... Uh, that we do not know how it's going, we're going to get out of it. Maybe it's a, a situation with your um, children. Maybe they're adult children, or maybe they're uh, not adult children, and you just don't know how it's going to go. Maybe it is. Um, uh, maybe maybe it's a situation with your spouse, or your job, or your finances, or your real estate investments, or whatever it is. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Right? Peace be with you. That's, that's what God offers us. I don't know how it's going to unfold. It might be terrible. You might not survive it. But because He lives, you are going to be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. You, it is, um, His resurrection changes everything. And so, um, so peace be with you. We are in His hands. We are made clean. We're not identified by our sin and our bad choices. Doesn't mean you should then feel free to go make bad choices. But we are made clean. The last phrase, and I think we're going to get all the way through it, is, um, is do you love me? Now, this is the scene. We actually just preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jesus is um, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and some disciples have gone fishing after the resurrection. I think Peter was just going grocery shopping. I don't think he had just... I don't think he had put the whole Jesus venture aside and say, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to go back to my life as a fisherman. Some people have said that. There's no way to really know, but I think Peter was just trying to figure some things out. He had denied the Lord three times. We never, when he says, peace be with you, he touches Thomas, you know, lets Thomas feel the scars and all this. We never see Peter. Peter, who's the, the number one chief disciple, we never see him. He's there, but we never see him. Peter's just trying to figure some things out. And fishing's a good way for him to do that. For me, it might be a run. I think Jesus would have showed up on a run. Or, or um, you know, who knows. But I don't know what it is for you. But he's going fishing because that's where he figures things out. And he recreate, Jesus recreates the scene where they first met. Because when they first met... Jesus was teaching. There's a big crowd. He has to get into a boat that just happens to be Peter's, uh, and he pushes out from shore. And after he's done teaching, Peter's he says, "Hey, let's um, why don't you put out your nets for a catch?" He said, "Come on, man. Uh, we've been fishing all night. We ain't caught anything." And Jesus gives him one of those sort of Jesus stare downs, and he says, "All right, I'll do it because you say to do it." And and he um, throws his net and more fish, and they fill up two boats full of fish. Peter face down on the fish, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. Here we are after the resurrection. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Never yet looked, really looked Jesus in the face, and he says, um, uh, he says, hey, guys, he says, it's translated children, but we might say, 
hey boys, you know, like that's that's how it's. Um, they're about a hundred yards off, so a little further than from one place here, and um, here, go like this, <laughs> big, big pose. Um, so he's about a hundred yards off, and he says, hey guys, hey boys, you catch anything? No, I ain't caught anything. Put out your nets on the right side of the boat. Maybe you'll catch some. It doesn't show that they have any hesitation, but they put it out. More somehow, Jesus knew there's a school of fish there. He put one there and has spoken into being. However, he did it, and in comes uh, this massive catch of fish. And Peter swimming to the shore. They have breakfast on the shore, and Peter uh, gets taken aside by Jesus. And three times, for every time he denied, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And he gets commissioned, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. I love that he doesn't say, now, Peter, we got to talk about this. Why did you do what you did? He doesn't say, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? He doesn't say, um, Peter, how are you going to make it up to me, what you did? He just says, do you love me? Because that's really all at the end of the day that matters. And every, he's gonna be, if he loves him, he's going to be sorry. If he loves him, he's going to try to make it up. If he loves him, he's going to try not to do it again. If he loves him, and, God, and Peter says, you know everything, you know that I love you. He loves him. He's going to follow him. And in the end, Jesus says, follow me. And in my sermon a couple of weeks ago, that's the one thing I didn't talk about that I wished I talked about, is that Jesus says the same words to him that he said when he first called him. I mean, he has recreated the whole initial scene and says, follow me. He reinstates him fully. And it is an incredible picture of grace. Now, I don't know at what point you feel like you've denied Christ or walked away from Christ or done what you should not have done, but that's the, it's the story of a disciple who has done something that he should not have done, who has disobeyed or abandoned Jesus in a way that he should not have done it. And Jesus asks you, and he asks me, do you love me? And he says, follow me. And it's just incredible grace. You know, grace is getting what um, something good that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something bad that we do deserve, right? So he gives him mercy, and he gives him grace. Sometimes the shorthand for both of those is just grace. But he really um, offers Peter something that he does not deserve, and fully reinstates him. And to me, that's just such a beautiful picture of the gospel in each of our lives. That we who have denied Christ in whatever way are reinstated and invited to follow me. So that's the last, uh, those are the last three chapters of John. That is the, um, uh, that's the, the, the crux. That's the hinge. It's what it's all based on. That God loves you so, not just His sentiment for you, but He loved you in death and resurrection. And he gives us, because of that resurrection, he reinstates us and gives us grace. Yes, Katie? I love his charge in these verses because he starts with the lambs, the children first. Don't leave out the children. You know, feed them. That's part of our job. Don't leave out the children, but yeah, he's not just talking about you know, he's talking about all all people. I think right. all people, all people. Yeah, but that's right. So, and and he's the good shepherd. So and he knows he's going away. 
He really gives Peter his own ministry. I'm not going to be the one who goes there and says, well, this is the making of uh, Peter as the first bishop. I'm not not going to go there. But I do think he's giving him his own um, ministry of tending, feeding the sheep. He's the good shepherd. Well, he's already told him he's going to be the rock. He's, he's already told him he's a rock. That's his name, is rock. Peter means rock. Yeah. So he is the foundation yes. for the future. And I, as, yeah, so that's variously interpreted as Peter himself, or it's, it's the proclamation that Peter makes that you are the Christ, and I, I tend to follow that line of thinking. But, um, but yes, no, I mean, Peter was, was centrally important. No, no question. A flawed personality. Yes. A flawed personality. That's why we love him. That's why we love Peter. Because we're all flawed. Yes, he doesn't. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Right. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's what we got time for today. You're in for. If you hadn't already been to church, you're in for a really good sermon by our own graduate, Emma Geiger, and uh, we will recognize our our graduates in a great tradition. God bless you, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.